the text for the sermon this afternoon you find in the scripture passage we've read in Matthew 2. We focus on the verses uh, 11, uh, 10 and 11. Matthew 2, verse 10 and 11. Read these verses again with you. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Thus far, the text for the preaching. In response to the proclamation of God's word, we will sing hymn 23, which in the stanzas 1, 5, and 6. Hymn 23, 1, 5, and 6. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today is Epiphany Sunday. Uh, some of you may think, oh yeah, of course, Epiphany Sunday, how could I forget? But there may be always be also some who think, Epiphany Sunday? What are you talking about? Let me explain a little bit. In general, having an epiphany means that you experience a moment of, um, of sudden insight, sudden understanding. Uh, suddenly the light goes on, we say, in a situation like that. It comes from the Greek word epiphania, which means manifestation, appearing. It's a word you find in the New Testament six times, and it's always about the appearing of Jesus. One time it refers to his birth or his resurrection, and the five other times it always refers to Jesus' second coming. Now, in the early Christian church, Epiphany was a feast day to celebrate the visit of the Magi who would come to Bethlehem to find Jesus. It's actually remarkable that this uh, tradition is, is, is much older than Christmas. Now, the actual Epiphany feast day is on January the 6th. That was last Friday. But when church is celebrated on a Sunday, it becomes the second Sunday after Christmas, and that's today. Now, in our Reformed tradition, the story of the Magi is often lumped together with the story of Jesus' birth, right? We, we, and at Christmas, you can preach from Matthew 2 or from Luke 2. You may come away then with the, uh, with the impression that the 10 minutes or, or half an hour or maybe a day after the shepherds walked out of the stable, the Magi walked in. But that's not the case. It really is a separate event. Perhaps about a year later. Perhaps even more. And it soon became a celebration that put the emphasis on Jesus' manifestation to the Gentiles at that time already. In the beginning of his book, Matthew presents Jesus not just as the Messiah of Israel, the king of the Jews, but also as the king of the nations. And at the end of his book, in chapter 28, Matthew picks it up again, because there the risen Christ says to his disciples, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the perspective. The perspective of this remarkable and significant meeting in the village of Bethlehem. Even more so, since God's own people were not present at that time in Bethlehem. So the pagan magi discovered the king of the nations. That's the message this afternoon. Pagan magi discovered the king of the nations. And we see in our text that they rejoice and they do so. They worship and they bring presents. Congregation, the magi, we read about in Matthew 2, um, the passage we've read, uh, historically known as the wise men from the east. Uh, they, are, they are very well known. At the same time, they are among the most mysterious people we hear about in the gospel. We're all familiar with the story, but we don't know much about these men. At some point in time after Jesus was born, they suddenly show up in Jerusalem, and they make some inquiries. Eventually, they find what they're looking for, and then they disappear. They go back to their own faraway country, never to be heard of again. We don't know how many there were. The tradition wants us to believe there were three of them, but that's connected to the fact that verse 11 mentions three different gifts or presents. But the Bible is silent about the number. The Eastern Orthodox tradition has 12. We don't know their names either. There are some traditional stories in which certain names have been given, but it's speculation, it's legendary. The Bible, again, is silent about it. We also don't know where they came from. It says from the east, but that's pretty fake, right? That can be, can be anywhere but east of the Jordan between Babylon and, and, and China, if you want to go that far. It must have been quite far, though. You get the impression that they did not know much about the promises of the prophets in the Old Testament, and they don't seem to be too familiar with the political situation for the Jews under the Romans. They also have been called kings. We have carols that sing about the three kings. But the Bible speaks here about magi. We have in the ESV the translation, the wise men, but that's, that is actually too general. It's more specific. Magi were a high-ranking class of political and religious influencers. They were highly esteemed advisors to the rulers of the ancient kingdoms and empires, Babylonia, Persia. They were astrologers, sorcerers, some kind of wizards. They were thought to be capable of predicting the future and interpreting dreams. Uh, those things remind us of the time of Daniel. During his many years as a royal advisor in Babylon and Persia, Daniel was affiliated with, with these circles of magi, magicians, astrologers. And so some, some scholars suggest that it could have been Daniel's influence that provides the link between what these folks were reading in the stars 
and what happens in Israel is not impossible. See, as Western Christians, we look at astrology as some kind of superstition, right? You don't believe your horoscope, do you? It sounds a bit strange, this, this, this mix of astrology with the coming of Jesus. They were pagans. They didn't know the scriptures. But you know what happens? The almighty God meets these visitors, unexpected visitors. He meets them on their own turf, so to speak. Right? He, he, he uses a star and he uses dreams. And in that way, God makes use of what, what, what these magi believe, how they think. God uses that to draw the attention to the coming of Jesus, his son. We saw his star. That's what they say when they come in Jerusalem. Now here again, we can easily be carried away by, by speculations. People have come up with lots of ideas to explain what these magi were seeing. Some talk about certain stars or comets. Others have calculated that at that time, a unique conjunction of two or more planets took place. But we don't even know how those astrologers would interpret the things they were seeing in the, in the sky. Fact is that somehow, God presented a phenomenon that would lead their thinking to the land of the Jews, the people of the Jews, and the king of the Jews. But think of it, it's more than that. There must have been indications in their readings that this king would be significant, not only for the Jews, but for the rest of the world. I mean, why bother making such a long and probably kind of dangerous trip if it would only be for a royal baby of local significance. No, no. What was going on is much bigger than that. So, and they come in Jerusalem, and they start asking around. They must have been totally nonplussed. No one seems to be too interested in the things they have discovered, or in the conclusion they have come to. To begin with, there is no newborn prince in the royal palace or anywhere else in Jerusalem. That's weird. Later on, it turns out to be in Bethlehem. That's where they go. Eventually, they find him. But the people in Jerusalem did not go. They couldn't be bothered. It says that they were disturbed or troubled in Jerusalem. But that's more because King Herod was upset than because of anything else. Herod was notorious for his unpredictability and his cruelty. So when that kind of king is troubled, that's bad news for the population. But as for the Jewish leaders, no. They find out that the story of these magi has to do with the prophets had said about the Messiah, but, but none of them gets excited about it. No one takes the trouble to travel the few miles to Bethlehem to check it out. No one seems to think it's a big deal. So what to think of it all? Perhaps the whole thing was a mistake. Wrong calculations, who knows? 
Would the trip turn out to be useless? You can imagine that these are the kind of questions that went through their minds when the Magi left Jerusalem, guided by Herod's instructions, strangers in a strange land, disappointed and uncertain what to expect. And then God surprises them. God surprises them. They see again the star they had seen in the east. It is God himself who comes to lighten up the darkness of that night. They see it right away. It's the very same star. It is the direct guidance of Almighty God himself. He confirms the confidence of these Gentiles through that unique phenomenon. When they began the journey, the Magi did not know where it would all end up. They left their home, they left their land, they left their comfort zone and followed the star. And here it is again, until it brought them to Jesus in Bethlehem. And that changes everything. When they saw the star, it says in the beginning of our text, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were overjoyed. The contrast is striking. There is no joy with God's people. It's indifference. They couldn't care less. There's no joy in Herod's royal palace, only anxiety. But these pagan magi on the road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem are overwhelmed with tremendous joy. Why is that? Well, it is God Himself. He takes away all the uncertainty. Every doubt, and they were most likely not very familiar with God's revelation in Israel and the words of the prophets, but God himself fills them with great joy. They feel assured we are on the right track. The end of our quest is near. It was not a mistake. Our journey has not been superfluous. And somehow this strange lack of interest on the side of the Jews is out of place. Matthew wrote his gospel in particular for his fellow Jews, so that they may come to see Jesus for who he is, the Messiah, the Savior, long expected by the people of Israel. But the epiphany is that here already the Gentiles leave God's people behind. The Gentiles leave the Jews behind. Pagan astrologers come and rejoice when they meet the king, God's king. And they recognize him as the king of the nations. Here is the king of heaven and earth. Here is the king who will rule forever. And in the joy of these magi, the joy of his salvation will spread to the ends of the earth. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. In the coming of Jesus as king of the Jews, the expectation of the Old Testament is fulfilled. He was the star that would come out of Jacob, that was prophesied in Numbers chapter 4, or verse 24, verse 17. But it's more than that. In him the expectation of the whole world, in him the expectation of God's creation is fulfilled. The star out of Jacob will be the light for the nations. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 49 verse 6. The Lord says, 
It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see they gather together and come to you. And my brother, my sister, what a reason for joy that is also today. Anyone, whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever your background is, whatever your history is, whatever language you speak, whatever your culture is, anyone who seeks Jesus will not be disappointed. And whoever will find Him will share in the joy, the joy of these magi. Let this joy be your joy every day again, the joy that today the King of the Jews is ruling as the King of the nations. Through this, uh, through this star, this miraculous star, God Himself acts as a reliable guide for the Magi. In His grace, He brings these men directly to the house where the family is staying at that time. Did you notice? Matthew doesn't talk about a stable or some other primitive shelter. As Luke does that in chapter 2, verse 7 of his gospel, he talks about a house. Now, some scholars conclude that Matthew must come from another tradition than Luke came from. And so Matthew tells a different version of the legend of Jesus' birth. But it's okay, they say. It just confirms the whole story is legendary anyway. Now, that is nonsense. Oh, let's just stick to the facts. It simply indicates that these magi must have come to Bethlehem at least a few months or a year or perhaps even up to two years after Jesus was born. Apparently, the family had decided to stay in Bethlehem and move into a house. And that fits with the fact that Matthew uses a different Greek word for child than Luke does. In Luke 2, Luke speaks specifically about a baby. Matthew does not. It's a different word. It also explains why King Herod, when he wants to kill Jesus, is not going after newborn babies. He's going after the boys up to two years old. He had figured it out based on the information that the Magi had given him in verse 7 of this chapter. Well then, in this house, the Magi finally experienced the epiphany of Christ the King. They find what they have been looking for all along, ever since they left their homeland for the journey westward. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. Joseph is not mentioned. He may be working, maybe just for another reason, out of the house. It's not so relevant. He simply doesn't have a role to play at this moment. We hear about Joseph again in verse 13. And then the Lord calls him to take up his task as the head of the family and bring them safely to Egypt. But here, he's not in the picture. 
All the attention is focused on the one who has been born king of the Jews. It doesn't say either Mary and her child. It says the child with Mary, his mother. However, think of it. You, you must have a strong faith. You must have a, an absolute trust to recognize the king. After all, it, it is an ordinary and simple and plain picture. There's nothing special. There's nothing majestic with his mother and her little toddler. On top of that, all the Jews themselves are just shrugging their shoulders. They recognize the miracle. Recognize the miracle. Pagan astrologers, unfamiliar with the Word of God, strangers looking for a young king, they are not confused or turned away by the humility and the simplicity they run into. They trust the one who brought them there. For he is the same as the one who had called them far away in the east. And in that trust they go ahead, and in that trust they travel, and in that trust they simply do what has been their intention all along. They fell down and worshipped him. Here, my brothers, my sisters, here we reach the highlight of the epiphany of, of the story. Honor. Respect, glory, worship, fitting for this powerful king. He is entitled to it. And if it doesn't come from his own, others will be brought in. That's what God is doing. But the honor must come. For a child of Bethlehem is not only the king of the Jews, he's also the powerful king of the whole world, of all the nations on the earth. And God wants him to be acknowledged as such, then and today. By bringing these Gentiles from outside of Israel to worship Israel's king, the Lord showed that he is more than Israel's king. He is more than the king of the Jews. God Almighty knows the universal character of his kingdom, the worldwide extent of his mercy and salvation, in the new era that is just about to begin. Here is your king, my brother, my sister. Here is your king. How wonderful. Here, in the very beginning already, and Jesus is, is just a toddler. Recognize the one who will gather his people. Recognize the one who will gather his church from all the nations and all the peoples of the earth. In Bethlehem, the Magi from the East represent all those nations, all those peoples. To them, Jesus himself will send his apostles with the instructions, the, 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 the mission commandment, make disciples of them, baptize them, teach them to observe what I have commanded you. The story of the Magi tells us that in Jesus' coming, God is doing something that is unsurpassable in significance. Something that will change everything. Something that will, will change darkness and hopelessness into light and hope for everyone who believes in him, who comes to him and worships him. The story of the Magi opens our eyes for the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. 
in Genesis 12. All peoples on earth shall be blessed through you. This worship, this glorification, it is the prelude, it is the promise of the things that are coming. The world king is on his way to the future glory. The glory God's whole creation is looking forward to. Oh, it's true. At this time, he is only on his way to the cross, to his suffering, humble and weak. That's true. Then and there, Jesus is suffering already. Because these pagan magi are the only ones. There were no Jews. God's covenant people were not there. Not one of them showed up. They refused to worship. They dismissed this story of heathen astrologers. Those people don't believe in God. Those people don't obey His law. But would they know? But by doing so, they reject the word of God's prophets. They reject God's salvation, promised through the prophets. They ignore the call to worship the son of David as the everlasting king. I mean, God could have easily guided the Magi directly to Bethlehem, right? Without a detour via Jerusalem. But God's people in Jerusalem had to hear the call to worship. Had to be confronted with the king. Honor the king. They didn't listen. And so the way of the suffering king towards his death on the cross starts right here in Bethlehem. But it's also the way towards the moment that he can proclaim all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the glory of Epiphany. And then it is time to unwrap the presents. After all, they keep the good rules. You cannot visit a king without bringing some precious gifts. Coming with empty hands will be offensive to the king. Everyone knows that. So the honor due to this king requires a fitting present. Well, that's what they have. They, they had very expensive presents. Indeed, fitting for a king. It shows how great, how deep the respect, the reverence was for this born king of the Jews. Notice that, that, that all this is presented to him. Not to the parents, not even to Mary. Now the toddler Jesus himself is the very center of what's happening. Now that does not mean, of course, that this worship and these gifts have no meaning for Joseph and Mary. It's not the point. This experience was also meant to strengthen their faith. And you can be sure that, that this was one of these things that Mary uh, treasured up and pondered in her heart. That's how Luke talks about that in Luke 2, verse 19 and 51. The gifts that were unwrapped show gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We all know gold is a valuable metal. Incense and myrrh are scented materials. They were in high demand in the ancient uh, East. Very expensive. Uh, they are used in fine perfumes, but also in oils and balms for medical purposes for embalming and religious rites sometimes. Now, some people have tried to find a specific symbolic meaning for each of these presents. That's a bit tricky, 
because you get a variety of options and opinions dependent on somebody's preference. So we don't need to go there. Now one of the practical results for the family was that they had the means for what was going to happen shortly after the visit of the Magi. They didn't know that yet, but, but now they were able to pay for the trip to Egypt when they had to flee from Bethlehem to save Jesus' life. But there is more to it. These presents are so precious. It is fitting with that this king may expect. Here is the beginning of the fulfillment of Solomon's prophetic words we sang in Psalm 72. The king of God's people will be provided with great treasures and rich gifts as honor and glory from all over the world. The prophet Isaiah says the same when he talks about the future of God's kingdom. He says in chapter 60, verse 5 and 6, The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. And those from Sheba will bring gold and frankincense. What does that mean? In this toddler Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is present in the world. And the nations are coming. What a promising moment that is. The presentations of these gifts, these wonderful gifts. Here in Bethlehem is the very beginning already of what we find in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, the Lord of John speaks about God's eternal kingdom as the new Jerusalem. And what does he tell us about that new Jerusalem? A lot of different things, but also that into this city will be brought all the treasures, all the splendor, all the glory and honor of whom? Of all the kings and all the nations of the earth. What a glorious perspective that is. It makes the incarnation of God's Son, the baby and the toddler later, it makes it a world-shaking event. International significance. That's the perspective. The coming of Jesus Christ changed the world. Then already, and it will change the world again and even more radically, more drastically, when he comes again as the king of glory. This, this little Jesus, glorified and worshipped by heathen magicians, honored with exotic and precious gifts, isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful? It's so promising. At the same time, there is, this is a dark, a threatening tone in the report of what happened there. Because not one gram of gold, not one grain of frankincense, and not one drop of myrrh is coming from the Jewish chief priests or from the teachers of the law in Jerusalem. The theological and spiritual leaders of God's people are not there. The church of that time was not there. They didn't want to be there. And there was no by chance. The absence of Jerusalem is a sign of what is going to come. The indifference now will turn into hatred. The chief priests and the teachers of the law will come to hate Jesus. They will come to reject him as the Messiah, as the promised king. They will condemn him to death and kill him 
God's own covenant people will send him to the cross. Indeed, from his early years on, Jesus was marked as the king who came into this world to go his way of suffering and death, his way to the cross and to the grave. But the way he chose is also the way of his death and resurrection. It's the only way of your and my salvation. It's the only way of the forgiveness of all our sins. And so, yes, there is lots to celebrate. And there's more. Oh, yes, Jerusalem is absent. God's people are missing. But these Gentiles are present. They are present with their worship and with their gifts. And what does that tell us? It tells us that Israel's unbelief will not stop the progress of the redeeming work of God's saving grace. The Almighty God Himself made these Gentiles leave their land and follow a star. He brought them to Bethlehem with their gifts, to praise and worship the King of the Jews, who turns out to be the King of the nations. And in the discovery made by these magi, God shows that one day the gospel of this king, the gospel of grace and mercy will go out to all the Gentiles. You recognize at Epiphany the reflection of the glory of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is coming and the gospel will go out. Today, no star will urge the people to leave their land. Each one, whatever language you speak and wherever you live, may hear the wonderful glory of the King of the Nations proclaimed in your own country and in your own language. Today, people from all nations, empowered by the Holy Spirit, share in the joy of this kingdom, and they worship Jesus Christ as the eternal King of heaven and earth. Today, throughout this whole world, People are being called to believe in the promising future of God's kingdom. And they come. They come from east and west, from north and south, because the gospel of Jesus is unstoppable. And so it has also come to you and to me. How is that for you? How is that in your life? No, we are not called to follow a star. You and I are not called to discover a toddler somewhere. We are called to repent and believe. We are called to come and worship our risen King. What do we do with that? What do we do with that urgent call to come and worship the King? How does that affect you today? Are we sometimes complacent? I was sometimes a bit like the Jews in Jerusalem. We hear the news, but yeah, whatever. They heard the message. It did not move them. Or I would like the Magi. I would like the Magi. Does the gospel of Jesus the King, does it fill you with, with joy? Does it fill you with the desire to worship? Not just well, yeah, who knows? But does it fill you with the desire to worship? My brother, my sister, are you overwhelmed with great joy because of Jesus? 
never take your relationship with Jesus for granted. Amen.